Matthew 28, starting at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Boys and girls can head out to story keepers and to nursery. As the kids are heading out, let me uh, pray for our uh, time in God's word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for this these uh, few verses that uh, for some of us are very familiar, for some of us perhaps are brand new. But Lord, uh, they speak into the lives of every one of us, and uh, we long to understand them and to uh, see how they do apply for our lives. So uh, whatever po uh, point in the journey of faith we are at, some of us perhaps feeling very distant from you, some of us with more questions than we know what to do with, others of us perhaps having had a rough week in one way or another, others of us just here grateful for what you're doing in our lives that uh, for each of us, you, the wonderful counselor, will come through your word and speak to our needs today, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are uh, visiting today or here for the first time, uh, we've uh, been spending the last month and a half looking at the what we've called the real last words of Jesus. That is not the traditional last words of Jesus, which the church usually ascribes to Jesus' words, on the cross as he was dying, but rather his real last words after he died and then rose again to life. And today in the closing message of the series, we've come to perhaps one of the most famous of these real last words at the end of Matthew chapter 28. Matthew seems to have structured his account of Jesus' death and resurrection such that each step along the way, he intentionally quotes Jesus to give Jesus' own interpretation of what has been going on. And that's important to note because while most preachers, and I myself have done this in this series, most preachers will break this chapter into two sections. Strictly speaking, the whole chapter is a unit in which Matthew reports the resurrection in the first half and then provides Jesus' uh, interpretation in the second what that means for us is that what we're about to find out is Jesus' own interpretation of the difference his resurrection should make in our lives, uh, in, in particular, in one particular area. This particular difference is famous enough that the church has given it a name, a title, called the Great Commission. And that's an appropriate title in a sense that it's not the only commission that Jesus gave after his resurrection. In almost every passage we've looked at in this series, we've seen a, 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 a mini commission of some sort. 
but that is Jesus sends someone or a group of people out uh, to go tell other people the news that he had died, but he's risen again. But here, the, the orders are taken to a whole other level. This is the big mama of commissions, because we'll see that while it's given to the 11 original disciples, it doesn't stop with them. This commission has been passed down from generation to generation to generation, all the way to us. We're recipients of this commission, which is why, as the sermon title says today, it is a word for everyone. Today is also an appropriate day to receive this commission afresh, because as I've already mentioned, today is Pentecost Sunday, which marks the beginning of the liturgical season of Pentecost, or what is sometimes called in the church calendar, ordinary time. That's ordinary, not in the sense of mundane or common, but the term comes from the word ordinal, which means counted time. And that's an appropriate name for the season because it's the longest season in the liturgical calendar. It stretches anywhere from 23 to 28 weeks, and it will go this year all the way to November 26th when the season of Advent begins. But the particular reason it's relevant for us to look at this commission afresh today is because it's in the season of Pentecost that we focus in particularly on the outworking of the mission of Jesus through his people, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It emphasizes the unleashing of the Spirit's work and power in and through the church, not least in response to the commission that Jesus issues here. And as we look at this great commission, we're going to break it down into three parts today, but begin with the middle part, which is the commission proper, the meat of the sandwich, as it were, and then we're going to look at the supporting parts before and after, sort of the bread holding the meat in place, the first of which will provide for us the motivation for fulfilling the commission, and then secondly, the foundation for fulfilling the commission. And all of that we could summarize this way. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. Jesus tells every single one of us, here is what I command you to do, and here's why you must do it, and here's why you can do it. Here's what I command you to do. Here's why you must do it. And here's why you can do it. Well, as this final section of the gospel begins, Matthew tells us in verse 16 that the 11 disciples headed from Jerusalem to Galilee, as Jesus had instructed them to do previously. And there they find Jesus. And then look at what Matthew tells us about the encounter, verse 16. When they saw him, they worshipped him but some doubt it. Now, we've noted this uh, in other post-resurrection gospel accounts, but again, I would suggest to you that if a story had been made, this story had been made up, no one would have written a statement like this. The climax of the story, the hero is back, having died and now having risen to eternal life, and some doubt it. So why is it here? Well, it's here because Matthew remembers that among some of them there, there were still some who were hesitant to believe that Jesus really was alive again. As I've mentioned before, this idea of a resurrection of an individual in the middle of history was outside the realm of possibility in every worldview that existed in Jesus' day. That we're told that some doubted is another indication, I think, of the historical reliability of these gospel accounts. Despite the doubt, Jesus approaches them, and here's what he says, verses 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in the words of that immortal Wendy's commercial, where's the beef? What's the meat part of this sandwich, which gives, gives us the actual commission? Well, not surprisingly, the beef is right in the middle here. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This was one of the very first verses that I remember having to translate in seminary from Greek to English because the professor wanted us to see that there's actually only one verbal imperative or command here with all the other verbs supporting that main command. And the main command is not what most English translations suggest it is. The main command is not go. The main command is make disciples. That's what Jesus here commands us to do. So we could translate the beginning of the verse a little more accurately by saying, therefore, while you are going, or therefore, as you go, make disciples. These first disciples of Jesus were to make disciples of other people who would make disciples of other people. And Jesus says, you're to make disciples, he says, of all nations, of all ethne, all ethnicities. Jesus' great commission here, coupled with his great commandment to love God, love our neighbor, is the foundation, as many of you know, the work of our denomination's task force, Revelation 7-9 task force, which helps, seeks to help churches improve their delivery of the great commission and the great commandment locally within a one, three, five mile radius. How can we, in the, the place that God has placed us, Better make disciples, better love our neighbors. But once those disciples are made, they too then fall under the exact same obligation as the original disciples given by Jesus, which is the job of discipling others. So Don Carson puts it like this, the 11 are paradigms for all disciples. It is binding on all Jesus' disciples to make others what they themselves are, disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been around here for a few years, you'll be very familiar with the terminology of the trellis and the vine. Indeed, at a breakfast conversation with one of you this week, we were, actually, we were using these terms in, in our discussion. Trellis and the Vine is the title of a book from 2013 by two Australians, Carl Marshall and Tony Payne. Uh, it's a book that we found very helpful in thinking about ministry here because the book explains that the, the basic work of Christian ministry or of any church, is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of God's Spirit, and then prayerfully to see people converted and changed and grow to maturity in the gospel. That's what the vine work refers to. It's the planting, the watering, the fertilizing, tending of the vine. But just as some sort of framework is needed to help a physical vine grow, so churches and Christian ministries also need some structure or support. At the very least, we need somewhere to meet, we need Bibles to read, need some basic leadership structures, so that all Christian churches have some kind of trellis that gives some shape and support to the work. And as the ministry grows, the trellis has to adapt as well. Management, finances, organization all become somewhat more complex as the vine grows and has to, has to adapt. But here's the big question for every church, including our own, and that is which of those two gets the more attention? 
Because the thing about trellis work is that almost without anybody noticing, it has the tendency to take over from vine, vine work. We set up our structures and our committees and our programs and our activities, and a lot of people start putting a lot of time into keeping them going, and we're exceedingly grateful for the people who keep those things going because we need them. But the danger, the danger then becomes that the actual work of tending to the vine is left to a very few and can even get neglected. So every so often we come back to ask ourselves, where is our focus in particular right now? Is our focus more on vine work or is it more on trellis work? Again, the trellis is important as a support to the vine, but it's a support to the vine. The vine work really is the reason for our existence, that we want to be a church that's equipping and motivating people to devote the majority of their time to the vine instead of the trellis. And why? Why do we do that? Because that's what Jesus is saying we should do right here. Jesus' commission is not to go and make trellises. It is to grow vines. It's to make disciples. Jesus gives the command of what we're all to be doing, and it is this, it's disciple-making. So how does that happen? Well, look at what Jesus says in verses 19 to 20. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus gives two means by which disciples are to be made. First of all, baptism. Baptism signifies not only that people are to be evangelized, such that they profess faith in Jesus Christ, but then it's done in a, in a context of a community. They're, they're initiated into a gospel community, a church where they get to live out a life of faith and obedience with other believers around them. So that making disciples happens in the context of a church, in a community. We're not to be making lone rangers or to be lone rangers ourselves. But secondly, Jesus says, disciples are made by teaching. Up to this point, Jesus has been the teacher of these disciples, but now these disciples in turn are to make new disciples by them teaching others to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Now, the core of what we are to teach is, of course, the good news of Jesus Christ. Luke's parallel account to this one, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus put it like this, Luke 24, 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in Jesus' name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. So we make disciples as we teach and preach the need for all of us to repent of our rebellion against God and to trust in Jesus as our Savior. And then, then we teach all that the Lord Jesus has commanded about how we are to live as his disciples. That's what Jesus calls every single Christian to do, the vine work of making disciples. That's the command of the risen Jesus to every follower. So that's the central commission. That's the meat. That's the one thing he wants you and me. He wants this church, every church to do. But perhaps you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, I get that the church is supposed to do this, but why should I personally have to do this? Can't I just do my own thing, come along to church as it suits? Isn't this really just for pastors and maybe really keen Christians why should I be a disciple maker? And here we come to Jesus' answer in that first slice of the bread and the sandwich, which addresses our motivation for fulfilling the commission. 
Jesus' answer is this, you're to be a disciple maker because I have the right to set the agenda of your life. Look at verse 18 again. All authority, last time I checked, all meant all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Jesus uses this word authority here. He's using a word that refers to the right and the power to hold sway in a given relationship. So, for example, a parent has authority over his or her children, but not necessarily over his or her neighbor. A teacher has authority over her students, but not over their parents. An office manager has authority over the secretaries, but not over the CEO of the company. That in all those situations, authority is the right and power to have your subordinates do what you choose them to do. And Jesus here says, this is the authority that he has over everyone and over everything. All authority in heaven and on earth, he says, is his. And Jesus wasn't just coming up with this out of thin air. He, he, was, he was claiming something the Bible had already told us was his. Let me just give you one example from the Old Testament. Prophet Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14 says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus here, in this resurrection appearance to his disciples, is saying, Daniel was talking about me. Everyone and everything is subordinate to Jesus. Every angel, every demon, the devil himself, and every single human being, including you, including me. So why should you be a disciple maker? Because you're under orders, you're under authority, because Jesus makes demands of you, because he has the right to set the agenda of your life. Now, this short passage is clearly just focused on one specific command of Jesus, to make disciples. But I recognize there's a bigger issue here regarding Jesus' claim of, to absolute authority in our lives and in this world that we, we need to address here. Because if we don't think about the bigger question, then we're never going to see why we have to obey this one command. Because let's be honest, some of us here are quite uncomfortable with such a claim of authority over us. We identify more with those famous last two lines of William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus. I, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But even if you are okay with this command of Jesus and this statement of authority, you can bet that the vast majority of your friends, your neighbors, maybe even your family members would not be comfortable with what Jesus asserts here. In fact, it probably would come as a shock to them that Jesus makes such an audacious claim that all authority in their lives resides with him. Christian Smith is a leading sociologist at Notre Dame University whose main area of study is emerging adulthood in our day. Back in 2005, he co-wrote a book entitled Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, 
in which he argued that the leading faith in America today, not just for teenagers, but more generally, is not Christianity or Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or even atheism. It is what he termed moralistic therapeutic deism. And many religious and cultural experts would say 17 years on from him coining that term, this is still the leading faith in our nation. Let me just mention a few of the tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number three, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. The gist of this is that for the majority of people in our, this nation, God is a being who is there when I need him or her, as they might think, in order to meet my request, but is, is not invited to interfere or intervene in my life unless invited. So at any other time, just needs to keep his distance. And this version of God, therefore, does not need to be particularly involved in my life. In fact, for many, we don't want it. He doesn't place demands on us, therefore. He's available when needed to solve a, a particular problem. That view of God is reflected in the title of a rather less scholarly book than Christian Smith's, written by a parenting expert on the modern teenager. The title of the book, Get Out of My Life, but first, could you drive Cheryl and me to the mall? That's pretty much the contemporary approach to God and faith and to Jesus. But moralistic therapeutic deism is an unfamiliar term to you. Much of its implications are borne out today in the more familiar language that we hear all around us of finding our identity or the related expression of expressive individualism new book that I'd recommend to you on this theme that just came out and relates to our culture's disdain of, of external authority is by the Australian theologian and writer Brian Rosner. His book is called How to Find Yourself, and in the book, Rosner explores how this contemporary search for identity involves not just looking inside to find yourself, but as with moralistic therapeutic deism, it has as its highest goal in most people's lives their own personal happiness. That's the ultimate goal, my happiness. So that all moral judgments then become simply expressions of your own personal preferences. Those become king. Key, therefore, to the good life is really to exclude all external authority claims and to pursue your own dreams, to be the captain of your own soul, your own life. But what I appreciate about Rosner's book is that he acknowledges that as reflective human beings, there is a place for looking within ourselves to find ourselves. But he says that in addition to that, there are three other significant directions in which we have to look. We have to look around to others to be, to be, know, to, to, to be known by them because part of knowing ourselves is being known by others. We also have to look back and look forward in our life stories which again brings other people in because all of our stories are shared stories. But then he says, ultimately, we have to look up. And when we look up, that puts a different complexion on all those other directions of looking. When I look up, it doesn't negate the other identity markers that make each of us who we are. I'm still a husband and a father and a son 
and a friend and a pastor and so on. But looking up, being in Christ, being under the authority of the one to whom all authority has been given has to radically change the kind of husband and father and son and friend and pastor that I will be. It significantly colors who I am. And Rosner argues, if you fail or refuse to look up, then you will never actually find your true self because by doing, you've cut yourself off relationally from the one person who rightfully and lovingly has complete authority over your life. That as we look up seeking to find ourselves, we hear that one of the real last words of Jesus is the authoritative word to each of us to make disciples of all nations. So Jesus has the right to tell you and me what to do. That's the first slice of bread, which is, which is why you and I are under orders to make disciples. But here's the second slice of bread in our sandwich. If the first slice is why we have to make disciples, the second slice is why we're able to make disciples. And the reason we're able to make disciples is that Jesus promises that he will be with us every step of the way if we want to live this way. Look at verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now the promise from Jesus here is not a generic promise to be there for us whenever or wherever. He makes such promises elsewhere, but this one is a very particular promise to be with us to help us to do something very specific, that is to fulfill our mandate to make disciples, that we're not alone in doing this. The beginning of Matthew's gospel, the angel Gabriel announces that the promise of the coming Messiah was the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Well, Matthew now comes full circle here at the very end of his gospel, and now he quotes Jesus making the very same promise himself that he's Emmanuel for each of us, that he's with us as we step out and witness and teach the gospel and teach Jesus' commands in order to see people come to faith and be baptized and to grow in grace. And he says he's Emmanuel always. That's a Greek expression here that appears nowhere else in the New Testament. It literally means the whole of the day. So he's not always in the sense just, just looking to the horizon in the future. But every second of today and tomorrow and each day this week and next week, the whole of every day, Jesus says, I am with you. And that promise does, of course, continue to the end of the age, he says, the end of history as we will know it, when Jesus will return to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. So that Jesus' real last word to all of us here in Matthew's gospel is a commission to make disciples, to invest ourselves in vine work more than trellis work. And he makes the command because he has the right and because he, he promises that he will help us. You know, it's always great when you know someone who is in a position of influence, a position of power, and is willing to use that for your benefit. Maybe you've had it happen in your life that you've landed hard to get concert tickets or to a sporting event or a table at a uh, an elite restaurant because of a friend in high places. But benefiting from a perk like that involves two things. The person from whom you're getting the assistance has to have influence, but secondly, you need to be on good terms with him or her. 
If the power isn't there or the goodwill is missing, you're wasting your time. But listen to this. Right now, sitting at the right hand of God the Father in the position of absolute authority is the one who loved you enough to die for you, to pay the penalty you owe for disobeying him, for rejecting his authority, which every single one of us has done. This Jesus has ultimate power. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says. The one who says that and the one who promises to be with you is the one who just days earlier from saying these words showed the depth of his love for rebels like you and me by paying hell for us. And you know what the upshot of that is? That as you and I move out to live gospel-shaped lives with a new agenda, with a mandate to make disciples as we share the gospel with others, as we read the Bible with one another, as we pray with one another, as we serve together, we don't need to be afraid of anything. Jesus, who loved you enough to die for you, is now in complete charge. Not just in charge on Sunday mornings, not just in charge of PCKS, but in charge of the universe. And this same Jesus loves you. He's committed himself to be Emmanuel to each one of us as we move out in obedience to this great mandate of vine growing in his kingdom. And of course, all this applies this summer as well. Even with your pastor not being physically present with you over these next few months, I won't be here, but I've just told you that you're in the best hands this summer because he's here, because he's committed to be with you always. And that's why I have hope and I'm praying for great things to happen in you and through you this summer. Every Wednesday, uh, our presbytery has an online prayer meeting. It's not a huge number who attend. Uh, But this past Wednesday, I mentioned to the others there that I was leaving on sabbatical and that I was praying that God would move in ways that exceed anything that we could ask or think or imagine this summer. And one of the pastors there reminded me of the related story of Reverend uh, Robert Murray McChain. McChain was the minister of uh, the Church of Scotland Church in Dundee, Scotland, uh, from 1835 until his death, untimely death in 1843, he died at the age of 29. But during his ministry, McChain took a six-month leave of absence in 1839 to go to Israel to evangelize the Jews and to spend some time there recuperating from ill health as well as for some personal renewal. And in his absence, he appointed a young minister, the Reverend William Chalmers Burns, to preach at his church in Dundee. And during that time, under the ministry of Reverend Burns, while the regular minister was away, God brought revival to that church in Dundee. Here's Burns' description of a meeting that took place on Wednesday, the 8th of August, 1839. He said, suddenly the power of God seemed to descend and all were bathed in tears. Was to become the next evening. There was a prayer meeting in the church. There was much melting of heart and intense desire after the beloved of the Father. No sooner was the vestry door opened to admit those who might feel anxious to converse 
that a, than a vast number pressed in with awful eagerness. It was like a pent-up flood fl breaking forth. Tears were streaming from the eyes of many, and some fell on the ground, groaning and weeping and crying for mercy. It was an awakening that lasted several months. Hundreds were converted. The fruit of that was felt for many decades afterwards. And when McChain arrived back from Israel on November the 23rd, he immediately headed to the Thursday meeting at the church where the building was crowded with over 1,200 people. And he described what he found this way. He said, I never saw an assembly in a church before, such an assembly in a church before. There was not a spot in the church left unoccupied. Every passage and stair were filled. I was almost overwhelmed by the sight, but felt great liberty in preaching. I never before preached to such an audience, so many weeping, so many waiting for the words of eternal life. Could God do the same thing again? Of course he could. His providence, such outpourings like this of the Spirit are somewhat rare, but, but he, he can do something like this easily because he's God. That's totally up to him. But what's important for us to remember is that the same Jesus who was with those ministering in Dundee, Scotland in 1839, in the absence of that church's pastor, is the same Jesus who's promised to be with you over these next three months. So I implore you to give up any notion of small ambitions for the next three months, any just consolidation thinking, survival, just trying to keep the lights on, just maintenance mode. All of that goes out the window right now. And, and even if you think, you know, that's not going to happen this summer, I want you to at least pray that it would. Pray that God will move by his spirit in the coming months for the vine work to flourish, for you all to grow in your faith by leaps and bounds, for people to come to faith in the Lord Jesus through the ministry of this church this summer. And step into roles, help in the nursery, help if there's need, need, uh, help needed in, in story keepers, help with parts of the service if there's a, an appeal. And then do the work of making disciples amongst yourselves and out into the community. That as you go this summer, make disciples, knowing that you must, and knowing that you can. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these marching orders you've given to your church. That these, this command, this commission has come down now to each generation of your people for, for 2,000 years now, that we would be a disciple-making, vine-growing people. And Lord, I pray for this congregation, this church family over the next few months, that you indeed will do great things in their midst, that you would, would do things beyond what, they, what any of us think could happen or imagine, because your spirit is at work here. And Jesus, you have said that you are with us to equip us and strengthen us for this work at hand. Lord, we pray with gratitude and thankfulness and anticipation of how you will enable us to make disciples and see people come to faith this summer. We pray all this in your name. Amen.